0: How many of you have uh, ever questioned, at least a question crossed across your mind, why does the Lord says, uh, have such a high premium on humility? Think about it. In the classic passage of Scripture on the subject of revival in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, the Lord lays down four conditions that must be met for revival. And the first condition is humility. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves. Now, why is that first? Well, first of all, we have to recognize that the Holy Spirit doesn't do anything just here, uh, hearsay and here and there or jumbled up. It's designed for a reason. Whatever is first is first for a reason is first in order of importance and in this case is first in order of difficulty in order to answer that question several years ago i did a, a personal bible study on the subject of humility particularly the hebrew word in second chronicles chapter 7 verse 14 on the word humble What I found was that there are some 15 different Hebrew words in the Old Testament that are all translated humble. I found that this particular word in 2 Chronicles chapter seven verse 14 is used exclusively only in the books of the Chronicles and the corresponding books of the book of Kings. A third thing I discovered about this word is that every single time it's used in the Old Testament, it's used in reference to one of the kings of Judah. You remember the nation of Judah. Sometimes it's referred to as the southern kingdom. You remember after the death of Solomon, during this, uh, his son Rehoboam became king and during his reign a man by the name of Jeroboam took 10 of the Northern tribes and separated. They retained the name Israel, but the new capital city for them was Samaria. While the Southern kingdom was composed of only two tribes, the tribes of Judah and Benjamin with the capital city remaining at Jerusalem. It's referred to in scripture sometimes as simply the Southern kingdom. But every time the particular Hebrew word humble is used, it's used in reference to one of those kings of Judah. Something else I discovered in my study is that every king of Judah who humbled himself before the Lord experienced personal revival and spiritual awakening. And not only did he experience personal revival, but revival came to the kingdom while he was king, whereas, on the other hand, Every king of Judah that refused to humble himself, the king who who hardened his heart, who stiffened his neck and refused to humble himself before God, revival not only did not come to that individual, neither did revival come to the kingdom. So you see the value in the sight of God of humility Now let's fast forward to our day. Where have we come in the church? We've come to magnify men and their abilities. I said we've come to the place where we've magnified men and their abilities. And at the same time, we've diminished God and His authority. Jesus dealt with this issue during his ministry in the 12th chapter of the Gospel of John. You have your Bible or your iPhone, whatever you use for a copy of the scripture, if you'd open it please. To the Gospel of John chapter 12, I wanna read a passage beginning with verse 20. And why don't we all stand as we honor the reading of God's holy word. John chapter 12, Verse 20, now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, now we get to the point of what Jesus is saying. This whole issue is not about salvation or sanctification it's about service. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Let's pray. Father, we're in need today. We're in need of ears with the ability to hear what you're saying to the church. We need eyes to see the truth that you're showing us. We need hearts open to you and your truth. And we need a will set to obey you. In Jesus' name, amen. If I were to title this message this morning, I would entitle it The Death That Leads to Life. The Death That Leads to Life. And notice how Jesus brings this truth to bear. The master teacher, there's only one like him. There never will be another like him. The master teacher and he begins by describing a two-fold picture of fruitfulness in nature. He does this in verse 24. In verse 24, he says, truly, truly, now I can't go any further than that. We've got to stop and understand what Jesus is doing here. These disciples have followed him now for nearly three years, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, Let's be honest with ourselves, folks. We only have so long an attention span. Let's be honest with ourselves. We only have so long of an attention span. Jesus knew that. And when he referenced what he was about to say with truly, truly, or verily, verily in the King James translation, it's like waving a red flag and he's saying, okay, guys, this is really important. Pay attention. Might even write it down. I said, you might even write it down. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, except a grain of wheat fall into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now, once again, Jesus, the master teacher, is addressing a group of people who live outdoors. They're primarily farmers and ranchers. And he constantly, during his ministry, used illustrations from nature, and he does so here. And he says to them, first of all, as far as nature is concerned, life imprisons life. If it were possible for me to have today a grain of wheat And if it were possible for me to have a small enough and sharp enough cutting instrument where I could dissect that little grain of wheat, and if we could magnify it and put it on the screen, what we would learn immediately is that a grain of wheat is composed of two things, an inner kernel and an outer husk. We would also learn from that picture on the screen, the color of green in the inner kernel indicating that there's life. And that's powerful life. That life has the potential and the power to produce more grains of wheat. But we would also learn that there's not only the color of green in the inner kernel, there's the color of green In the outer husk, meaning that there's life in the husk. And as long as there's life in the outer husk, the life in the inner grain cannot be released to do what it has the power and the potential to do. For in nature, life imprisons life. But he goes on to say in the same verse, verse 24, that in nature, death imparts life. Because of the farmer, there comes a time when it's time to plant. And he takes his plow and he breaks up the surface of the ground. And he takes the wheat in the sack, the seed wheat in the sack in the barn He takes it out and in that day they would take like an outer apron and they would pour the apron full of seed and they'd take a windy day and they'd get on the upper portion of the land and they'd throw out the seed and the wind would carry it over a large portion of the earth. And when that seed would fall into the ground, something would happen. When that seed was placed in the cold, damp, dark earth, the outer husk begins to disintegrate and to die. And as the outer husk dies, the life in the inner kernel is released to do what it could always do in the beginning. Now it begins to send forth roots into the earth to soak up the water and the minerals and everything necessary for life and a stalk begins to grow, and eventually it penetrates the surface of the ground and grows skyward, and guess what? It produces more grains of wheat. And one little grain of wheat will produce 30, 60, 100-fold. But as long as that seed is in the sack in the barn, it can never be fruitful. The same ground that promises death produces life. Because as far as nature is concerned, fruitfulness in nature doesn't just suggest It demands that there be death. And then, once again, the master teacher, Jesus, moves from describing that twofold picture of natural fruitfulness to detailing a twofold principle of spiritual fruitfulness. And he does that in the next verse, verse 25. He says, he who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. And one of the first things you'll notice about verse 25 is the appearance of our English word life three different times. Actually, in the original language, there are two different Greek words. The first two times he mentions life, that he who loves his life will lose it and he who hates his life in this world, it's the Greek word suke. It has to do with natural life. It's life that we receive as a result of our first birth. Actually, sometimes it's referred to as soulish life. In fact, if you look at verse 27, listen to what Jesus says. Now my soul has become trouble. It's the same word there. It's the Greek word souké. Soulish life. Again, natural life. Life is a result of our first birth. And what do we get in the life of the first birth? We get our natural energy, our natural abilities, our natural talents. And what we have to understand in this verse is that the terms love and hate are not emotions, they're preferences. And basically, what Jesus is teaching us here is two things. Soulish life, listen to me, soulish life cannot produce spiritual fruit. It takes spiritual life to produce spiritual fruit. Don't you understand? When you first got saved, Who came to live within you? Jesus. Everlasting life. And by the way, the third time that word life is used in verse 25 is the Greek word zoe. That's the life of God. That's eternal life. And Jesus comes to live within our heart. But that spiritual life all of us have internally is surrounded by a soulish life. And if we love, if we prefer, if we depend on in our attempts to serve the Lord on our soulish energies, our soulish life, it will only result and death. Soulish life cannot produce spiritual fruit. But spiritual life produces spiritual fruit. And as we die to our reliance, our dependence on what we have, our talents, our personality, our education, and rely on the inner life of Christ, Then and only then can spiritual, zoe life be produced. Zoe fruitfulness. You remember over in the Old Testament, Jacob? Jacob was a unique individual. He was known by his name, Jacob, which means supplanter, deceiver. Liar. Did you know that Jacob loved God? Hello? Did you know that? Did you know that Jacob tried to serve God? Didn't work out so well, did it? He, uh, he deceived his brother, older brother Esau. He stole the blessing from him. And Esau pledged to kill him. And so uh, Jacob's mother said I've got a good idea why don't you go see my brother in the far land and find you a wife and live there for a while until uh, your older brother gets over his anger But there came a day when the Lord told Jacob to return home Anyway he'd already fell out of favor with his father-in-law he'd lied to him deceived him tricked him And so Jacob is on his way back and uh, He's not too feeling too comfortable in meeting his older brother. And he comes a place across a place called Penile. And one night, God sent an angel. Somebody said, "Was that the pre-incarnate Christ, or was that an angel? Are you ready for this?" I don't have the foggiest notion. And I'm not too worried about it. All I know is it, he was sent by God. And what did Jacob do in his own natural energy? He wrestled with the angel of the Lord, which was a losing proposition to start with. And the Lord reached down and t- dried up the sinew of his thigh. And for the rest of the life, rest of his life, Jacob Was a cripple. Do you understand what that means? For the rest of his life, he walked with a limp as a constant, daily reminder that he couldn't depend on himself any longer. He had to rely on God. And there was such a change in his life that God changed his name. From Jacob, the deceiver, to Israel, prince of God, ruling with God. And my dear friends, all of our best efforts All of our greatest energies are not enough to produce spiritual fruit. When soulish life, when the natural life and natural talents and natural energies are rejected and we rely on the inner life of Christ, then and only then do we bear fruit. Finally, The Lord's not through. After he described this twofold picture of natural fruitfulness, and after he followed it up by detailing a twofold principle of spiritual fruitfulness, now he comes to declare a twofold promise of perpetual fruitfulness in verse 26. If anyone serves me, He must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Once again, the whole point, this is where he's been headed, the whole teaching, it's serving the Lord. And first of all, he gives us a promise of his divine fellowship. He says again in verse 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. That where I am, there my servant will be also. Guess where he was headed? He was headed to the cross. He was within hours of crucifixion. He said, if you're going to have to follow me, you're going to have to go where I'm going. That where I am, there you must be also. This is where so many believers have a problem, not following the context of Scripture. People read Romans 6.11, says you're to reckon yourselves dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God. We make a point, as the Scripture does at that point when it comes to sin, we have been crucified with Christ and because we've been crucified with Christ, that bond, that, that domination that sin formerly had over is forever broken. Doesn't mean that we never sin again, but it does mean we no longer have to sin. We're no longer under the rule of sin. That's been forever broken. And we're free. We're at liberty to walk with the Lord. But when it comes to Service when it comes to solenessness, when it comes to the self life, that's not the case. Remember what Jesus said, Luke nine twenty three. If anyone follow me, he must what deny himself and take up his cross. And what's the next word? Daily he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. You see, it's not once and forever. It's not one and done. It's every day. But we don't go there by ourselves because he's already been there. It's a promise of divine fellowship. But it's also a promise of divine favor for he says in the latter part of verse 26, if anyone serves me, the Father Will honor he, will honor him. What came after crucifixion? I'm sorry, that's a question usually implies somebody in answer. I heard a little mumble, but I couldn't understand. The resurrection. And what followed the resurrection? The ascension. And what followed the ascension? What happened there in heaven? glorification and just as surely as we follow Christ in the crucifixion we follow him in resurrection and we follow him in glory as well let me see if I can illustrate that in this way how many of you who in your whether you live in a home or an apartment or a condo have a hallway in your home, would you raise your hand? Look around, that, that's pretty much everybody. Everybody's got a hallway in the house. Now let me ask you this question. How many of you have a bed in your hallway and you sleep in your hallway? Let's see your hand. Nobody? Hallways are not meant to spend your life there. They're meant to pass through when you go from the TV at night to the bedroom, you walk through the hallway to get to your bedroom. When you get up in the morning after you dress, you go to the, your kitchen to eat breakfast. You go through the hallway. Hallways are a pl- place you pass through. And crucifixion is something that we constantly have to pass through when it comes dying to the self-life. It's a daily process. It's a daily experience. Fruitfulness in service requires that we daily pass through the hallway of death to self. I think one thing that confuses many people is that in the natural world, death follows life. But in the spiritual world, life life follows death do you remember Gideon's army in Genesis chapter 32 once again the Lord sent an angel was it an angel or the pre incarnate Christ I don't know and I'm not worried about it all I know is the Lord sent him and he said hail mighty warrior and, and you know Gideon said who me if we're supposed to have such a mighty victory and everything's supposed to be going, through, well, why are, we, why are the Midianites ruling over us? He says, well, the Lord's going to give you victory over the Midianites. He says, you just need an army. So Gideon, to be a, just a regular Joe, he did a pretty good job. He raised an army of 33,000. And the Lord said that that's not going to work. That, that won't work. You win a battle with an army of 33,000, you get the big head. That's the free John Moore translation, okay? Don't get upset. He said, you get the big head, you'd think it was you that did it. You need to reduce this army. You go, you go tell them, everybody that's, that, that's afraid, everybody has fear, go home. Everybody that's recently married, you, go home. 11,000 soldiers went home, left with an army of 22,000. Lord said, that that, that still won't work, you'd get the glory, I wouldn't get the glory, that, that's not gonna work. So send the, send the army, send them down to the wadi, to the water brook, and you watch them while they drink water, the, those that just get down and get their head down and drink water, send them home. I said, only keep the ones who put their weapon to one side and lap up the water with their hand and and lick it out of their their hand and Gideon was left with an army of 300. Lord said, that's that's about the right size. He said, I'll tell you what you're going to do. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to equip every one of these 300 with a bugle, with a torch and with a clay pot. Now Boy, that would, that, that's some kind of weaponry for an army, isn't it? A bugle, a torch, and a clay pot. And he said, go up on the mountaintop and those Midianites, they're gonna be down in the valley. They, they, they're gonna be almost an innumerable horde of army but I want you to get on the mountain, station these 300 men on the mountaintops. And then when Gideon gives you the signal, I want you to light that torch, put it inside that clay pot, take that bugle and blow that horn and then break the pot, lift up that torch and say, the sword of the Lord and Gideon. That's exactly what they did. When they did, all those horde of people down in that valley, those soldiers, they got so confused they didn't know what was going on. They began to fight with one another. And before you know it, they'd killed every one of themselves. Every one of them were dead. And it took the army, Gideon's army of 300, three days to carry off all the plunder. But it didn't happen until they broke the clay pot which was hiding the torch. And when the light of the torch was shown, victory came. It's no different for us today. As long as we struggle around and do our best and operate in our natural energies will never produce fruit in service to the Lord. But when we're willing to die to our own self-sufficiency and our own self-confidence and rely totally on the inner life of Christ, there's the victory. There's the fruitfulness. Would you bow your heads with me? And say, Lord, today, I want to be a fruit-bearing Christian. I want to die to the old ways, to the self-ways. And I want the inner life of Christ to be released from me to touch the lives of those around me.